Galatians 3, 1 through 14 and 18. You irrational Galatians, who put a spell on you? Jesus Christ was put on display as crucified before your eyes. I just want to know this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so irrational? After you started with the Spirit, are you now finishing up with your own human effort? Did you experience so much for nothing? I wonder if it really was for nothing. So does the one providing you with the Spirit and working miracles among you do this by you doing the works of the law or by you believing what you have heard? Understand that in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are the children of Abraham. But when it saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. Therefore, those who believe are blessed together with Abraham who believed. All those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone is cursed who does not keep on doing all the things that have been written in the law scroll. But since no one is made righteous by the law as far as God is concerned, it is clear that the righteous one will live on the basis of faith. The law isn't based on faith, rather, the one doing these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. He redeemed us so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, and that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. If the inheritance were based upon law, it would no longer be from the promise. But God has given it graciously to Abraham through a promise. We are currently making our way through a first century letter written by a Christian missionary named Paul to the Christians in a region called Galatia in modern day Turkey. Paul had been the one to first introduce these Galatians to the story of Jesus. But recently, a new pack of preachers has showed up around town. They're claiming that there was an error in Paul's original presentation. Uh, the dispute isn't over some minor matter, but it cuts to the very heart of religion. Uh, the question on the table is this. If you want to be good with God, what does it actually take? Uh, the debate over what it takes to be in good standing with God ends up circling around the story of one particular man named Abraham. Why this guy? Well, if there's one person that all parties could definitely agree was right with God, it was Abraham. His story is recorded in the first book of the Bible, and both Jews and Christians considered him to be the father of their faith. If you haven't heard his story before, uh, let me give you the Wikipedia version. Abraham was a Bedouin who followed God from his homeland in Ur, in modern-day Iraq, uh, to the land of Palestine. God famously makes two huge promises to him. 
Uh, The first promise is that Abraham will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. This, despite the fact he was already over the hill and had no children at all at the time. The second promise was that Abraham's descendants would inherit the land of Palestine. This, despite the fact that in his lifetime, the only land Abraham owned was his wife's burial plot. Abraham was remembered as being the first to practice circumcision, which became the chief identity marker for his family, the Jewish people. He was also remembered for the time he heard God command him to sacrifice his son and almost followed through until an angel stopped him. Everybody accepted Abraham's status as religiously exceptional. So it made perfect sense to ask, What made Abraham so pleasing to God? The new preachers in town had an answer. The exceptional thing about Abraham was his obedience. This was a guy who knew how to follow orders. When God tells him to cut off a rather personal body part, he does it. When God commands him to sacrifice his son, the son to whom all the promises are attached, he obeys. What made Abraham so righteous in such good standing with God? He did what he was told. This then was the religious conclusion of the new preachers around town. If you want to be in right relationship with God, just do the right thing. What God commands, obey. Whatever duty God requires, perform. Do all the stuff and you and God will be good. There's a certain appeal to this kind of message. Sure, the commandments might be tough. Nobody ever claimed that pleasing God was easy, but at least you know what has to be done and you're in control of whether you do it. And perhaps there's some added benefit for society because People are motivated to behave and get good stuff done in order to keep God happy. But there are a couple of problems when it come, with this message when it comes to application. After all, it's one thing to know what the requirements are. It's another thing to be able to execute them. We don't always feel as in control as our theory suggests. I mean... I've been following Jesus for quite a few years, and I'm pretty clear on his commands. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Tend the sick. Visit people in prison. Honor your parents. Love your enemies. Welcome strangers. Tell the truth. Don't worry about anything. Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. I know these commands. And at various points in my life, I think it's fair to say I've done all of them individually. But I'm not doing all of them right now. In fact, it seems like every time I try to pick another one of them up, I seem to just drop the one I had before. I mean, how do I know when I've actually done enough 
to make God happy, to, to really earn the crown of righteousness, you know? Like, God's approval often seems disturbingly elusive and uncertain. And the problem isn't just that the tasks are endless and it's hard to be sure when we've done enough. The problem is also that sometimes someone holds up a mirror to us and we discover we might not even be that good at all. I might be great at biting my tongue and being nice to people, but the inside of my head might well be oozing with hidden biases and unspoken judgments. I might make huge financial sacrifices for others, but deep down, I might still be motivated not by love, but by anxiety about what God or others think of me. And Jesus teaches that what matters isn't just the action, but the heart behind it. If this is true, it might turn out that all my so-called virtue actually counts for nothing. Attempting to please God through obedience and good behavior is an incredibly complicated and anxiety-inducing endeavor in which it's impossible to be sure if anyone is achieving a passing grade. But according to Paul, the people preaching this message have actually taken the wrong lesson from Abraham's life. And Paul invites the Galatians to go back and look more closely at Abraham's story. And before Abraham had ever received the command of circumcision, before he obeyed the call to sacrifice his son, before Abraham had accomplished any of the acts of obedience for which he was famed, Genesis 5-6 says this, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. According to Genesis, Abraham met the basic the requirements for right relationship with God before he started obeying and doing all the things. How is that even possible? Genesis says he did it by believing. But what does that even mean? It's easy to hear this word believing and be drawn to the opposite conclusion of the Galatian preachers. Perhaps actions don't matter at all. All you need to be good with God are right beliefs. But this isn't at all what Paul or, or the book of Genesis has in mind. And when they say Abraham believed God, they don't mean Abraham believed in God. What they actually mean is Abraham trusted God. Abraham trusted God. And God counted that trust as meeting the basic conditions of right relationship. At the beginning of Abraham's story, God made all sorts of promises to him. Promise of descendants, promise of land. These promises were given as gifts. There was no command given with them, no requirements to earn them. And the extraordinary thing is, Abraham believed them. He took God at God's word. He believed that God meant what he said. Abraham trusted that what God promised, God would give. And he got up and he lived each day as if that future that was promised was really going to happen. 
Uh, what Paul offers us here is, is a really remarkable redefinition of what it takes to be right with God, of what God is even really looking for from us. When we want to know where we stand with God, almost every person I know, church-going or not, instinctively uses the same assessment form. How good have I been? Have I followed enough rules? Have I been right enough? Have I done enough right things? But Paul says, hold up. You're using the wrong rubric. You're scoring yourself and everyone else on a scale God isn't using. If you really want to know where you are with God right now, ask yourself this. How much have you trusted God? Are you living as someone who's convinced that God's word is good and God's promises are given? It's not your relationship to the commands that defines where you are with God. It's your relationship to the promises. Obedience is important and valuable, but the one thing that God wants more than anything else is just to be trusted as good. So let's get specific. Uh, what exactly are these promises we're supposed to be believing? Well, for Abraham, they involved descendants and land, but in Jesus, the promises got so much bigger. Uh, the first promise that Paul mentions directly to the Galatians is the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? This promised spirit comes with many other promises attached. John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He won't speak on his own, but he'll say whatever he hears, and he'll proclaim to you what is to come. In other words, we're promised through the Spirit that Jesus will keep speaking to us and making God's voice and God's will known. John 16, 23, Jesus says, In that day when the Spirit comes, you won't ask me for anything. I assure you that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things, food, clothing, and provision, will be given to you as well. Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, I assure you that anyone who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or farms because of me and because of the good news will receive a hundred times as much in this life and in the coming age, eternal life. That's sacrifice rewarded. John 14, 2, Jesus says, My father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I'll return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you'll be too. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of the present age. These are just a few of God's promises given and made possible by Jesus Christ. God's voice, provision, constant companionship, prayer with the power to change things, sacrifices rewarded, death that's not the end. 
Abraham believed God's promises. His life reflected a core conviction that God's word was always good. And God was delighted by this trust and counted it as right relationship, righteousness. Do you believe the promises given to us in Jesus? If you believe the weather channel that it's going to rain today, you'll carry an umbrella. If you believe your financial advisor that a stock will go up, you'll buy it. If you believe your mother when she promises dinner, you'll show up at the table ready to eat. Promises matter because the people who really believe them act differently. You will sacrifice a lot if you believe and trust that a better future is just around the corner. You will risk a lot if you believe and trust there is an unbreakable safety net beneath you. You'll love selflessly if you believe and trust that someone is walking with you every day who cares for your needs. Trust is even greater than obedience because it doesn't just call us towards something, it empowers us to choose that thing freely and joyfully and with confidence. We can obey because we trusted. It's your relationship with the promises that will ultimately define the true shape of your life. God says, do you want to please me? Then trust me and live as if the word I've given is true, as if the future that I've promised will come. I invite you to spend a moment in prayer with me. God, we confess that we are a people that often struggle under the, the burden, the weight of heavy commands. We hear you calling us to do so many things, and at least some of them feel really important. But every time we pick one up, another one falls down, and it feels like there's an impossible task in front of us. But we thank you for this good news proclaimed to us in Jesus, that our status with you is no longer measured by our keeping of commands, by our being perfect enough, pulling it together enough, getting enough right things done. And instead, our status with you is measured simply by our trust, our willingness to trust that you are good, that your word is good, that your grace is good, that your promises are good that you mean what you say. That the gift of salvation you offer us really is free for the taking. That the future you promise, a future of life and fullness, really is given to us. We pray that you would stir that trust up in us this morning and that you would empower us to live lives of trust the lives of people who really do believe that that future is true and it's coming. In the name of Jesus, the son of your promises, we pray. Amen.